You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I just want to tell you that this week's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to launch your passion project, whether you are showcasing your own work or selling products. I know many of our listeners are writers. It's a great place to put a portfolio of your writing up. They've got the perfect templates for it. So go to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. And you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you, Squarespace. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. There's a hole in the wall of the studio, but we're just going to ignore that. <laughs> Man, <laughs> everyone making me feel so bad about the studio. Aaron, it's, what about a guest on this uh, week's program? I taped it here when there was still a wall over there uh, with Doug Bach-Clark. Um, I first came across his writing because he wrote these two incredible pieces about North Korea, uh, one about Otto Warmbier, who was uh, held there and ended up brain dead, and one about the assassination of uh, Kim Jong-nam, which was a piece that actually kind of caught my eye because he took a somewhat unusual tact of uh, following the lives of the two women who believed that they were in a prank show and actually uh, smeared a nerve agent on uh, Kim Jong-il's uh, older son. I remember uh, I remember when you read that story because I got the rare note from Aaron that just said, excellent, period. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, he has a book out. It's about uh, the time he spent living with um, one of the last indigenous groups on Earth that still practices whaling. Uh, I really enjoyed the book and uh, the way that he ended up uh, living with these people and writing this book is pretty interesting as well. The book is excellent. It was uh, excerpt in the Atavist magazine in the fall. And, uh, Put that in the show He really notes. went deep. The yeah. la- I think the, uh, the story is The Last Whaler. Is that the mm-hmm. name of that? Okay. Put, put that in the show notes. What else we might, might someone find in the show notes? While we're on the topic of excellent books, uh, we have an excellent book of our own. On the show, Evan Ratliff has written a book. Aaron and I did not write a book. It's like the show had a baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Evan has a book. Uh, it's called The Mastermind. It is coming out very soon, and uh, we are going to uh, we are going to celebrate this tremendous event with a uh, live long form podcast event book party 
extravaganza at the Bell House on uh, February 13th. Are we going to reveal a guest or is this going to be more of like, we're going to keep, we're going to build suspense Let's here. wait a week. Okay. We've got special guests. We're going to wait a week to reveal If you feel that. suspense building, tune in next week to find out who the special guest is. <laughs> but it's important to say that this event is free, which means we are inviting you, the listener of this podcast, to come drink with us, hang out, uh, listen to a live interview, and uh, maybe pick up a book. Where where, and when was it again? It's at the Bell House, February 13th, Wednesday night. Okay, so it's free. You RSVP on Eventbrite. Then when you get there, there's a suggested donation, and that's that you buy Evan's book. Max and I will be enforcing it. I also <laughs> might be selling some T-shirts out of my trunk. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I plan on uh, very heartily suggesting that you make that donation. Hey, Aaron, if you had something coming out that you'd been working on for years, like a book called The Mastermind, and you wanted to let people know that it was finally arriving, how would I possibly do that? Newsletter. It's the most consistent way to actually get across your message. Uh, everyone is leaving social media, but no one is leaving email. That is why it is a great time to start a MailChimp newsletter. They make it easy. They support our show. They've supported our parties in the past. So I don't know if this is actually true, but I'm just going to say that this uh, party is definitely brought to you by MailChimp. Uh, <laughs> in some th- sense or another. Thanks to their support. And now here's Aaron with Doug Bach Clark. Welcome, uh, Doug Bach Clark. Well, thank you. I think we have you pretty close. Is the book out today, tomorrow? Tomorrow. Big day in your life. Feels like it's been a long time in coming. <laughs> okay, let's let's go back first. How did you start out writing? So I came to this point sort of a through an odd route. Um, I went to university, did English. I didn't do any journalism, any long form writing. Then I did a lot of Shakespearean scholarship. And I actually thought that I was going to be a Shakespearean scholar for a long time. Just give me an idea. How many Shakespeare scholars are there in America? Like, how many people earn a living through Shakespeare scholarship? You know, so I didn't get deep enough to know that number exactly. But it was it was one of these things, you know, I took a class, got really interested in it. And then I sort of went down this really strange rabbit hole, which actually in some ways sort of led me towards journalism. It was it taught me for the first time that I could figure things out. So there's a little known fact that Shakespeare probably collaborated with a lot of other writers for some of his plays, not all of his plays. But at the beginning and at the end of his career, it's fairly well established that he did so. And so I noticed that um, he had a very strange way of spelling things. Like he, back then there were no dictionaries, there was no codified way to spell any word. And I realized that he had a very unique way of spelling certain words. And that even more, there were these huge online repositories where many of the documents from those time periods were, you know, digitized. So I just went, when I was a, an undergraduate, I went down this <laughs> very long rabbit hole of just sort of trying to discover which plays Shakespeare had actually authored. Yeah. And that was sort of my first experience of trying to f- really figure out a mystery, as it were. And at the end, when I graduated from university, I thought that I was going to establish, to spend my life trying to establish Shakespeare's authorships of different parts of the Shakespearean canon. 
Um, but I still wanted to have an adventure, so I ended up getting two Fulbright fellowships in a row to Indonesia. And um, while I was there, I what what like do you apply to a Fulbright with a project? You do. I applied just to teach English, basically okay. to do a service um, one. And then my second year, I was like a senior fellow, so I helped coordinate incoming fellowships. I opened the program in a part of the country that had Sharia law, um, established it at a set of universities there. You know, I figured if I was going to go study musty old tomes for the rest of my life, I wanted to go and um, see the world a little bit. And while I was doing that, I realized that I was very interested in telling the stories of the things that I saw while I was over there. Where was the first place you landed in Indonesia? It was a small island called Sumbawa. It's not well known, not much, <laughs> very few reasons anyone would ever have gone there yeah. besides that the Fulbright program sent me there. What were your early experiences with trying to take your time in Indonesia and the stories and turn them into published writing like? You know, so I didn't actually try to do it immediately. I read Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers while I was there. And that was a really powerful book for me. It really gave me sort of a roadmap for how to tell the stories of the people that I that I were seeing and the yep. lives that I was living. And the island that I was on was fairly remote. It had wasn't truly, truly remote, but it had a very mountainous interior, which very few outsiders had ever gone into. And so during my time off, which I had a generous amount of time off, I would just go and hike into those mountains and go f on foot, village to village. And while I was doing that, I got to just see these incredible villages, um, just these really just unique, just microcultures. You know, you'd go from one village to the next. And all of them spoke the national language, Bahasa Indonesia, but they would also speak their own sort of, not dialect isn't even the right word, because it truly, to them, they called it their own language. They felt like it, there was own language. There's some mutual intelligibility, but not a whole lot. And so I just saw all of these cultures, who, which had been aware of the outside world for a long time, but which were really sort of encountering it <laughs> for the full force while I was basically arriving. And so during that first year in Indonesia, I got quite interested in seeing how these cultures met the modern world. And during that time, I also heard about this group called the Lamalarans, who are the group that I wrote my book about. And they're unique because they, there's a group of about 1,500 people who continue to hunt sperm whales with bamboo harpoons and ancient wooden boats. And so during one of my breaks during the Fulbright Fellowship, I got to travel out there for a few weeks and spend some time with them. And I did not have the idea to write a book about them at the very beginning, nor even by the time I left on that first trip. But sort of as the idea continued to grow in me that I wanted to do something like become a writer or do something like Catherine Booth's Behind the Beautiful Forevers, increasingly I thought about trying to tell the stories of these groups that I saw in the mountains or this whaling group, the Lamalarans. Compared to your knowledge now, say, of the Lamalarans, um, which I would say this book is not an anthropological study, but you probably have enough data to do an anthropological study if that was your intention. Um, how much did you know the first time you showed up there? Like, how did you build up your knowledge of this island that they live on and this 
pretty like fractured history of the different tribes. I mean, it's for 1500 people. There's a lot of internal complexity. Yeah. So I, at the first time I visited, I basically had nothing. Yeah. Um, there was several anthropologists had already lived with them and produced ethnographies and um, various journalists had done very short visits and, and I had been able to partially download one of the ethnographies, but the <laughs> internet was so bad and the file was so big that yeah. it just kept crashing it. So I had like, I don't know, 20 or 30 pages of the PDF and the the internet access on the remote island in Indonesia I was living on was not good. And, you know, you I found various articles and stuff, but I wasn't, you know, I was sort of, again, I was more in exploratory mode than yeah. I was in writing mode. And so, you know, I spent several weeks with them and that was between the first and second years of my Fulbright fellowships. Then I went to go do my second Fulbright fellowship. And that was the year that I really, really started to get interested in writing and really started to to test myself and, and to see if I could do it. What were your early tests like? So I got this fellowship called a Glimpse Fellowship, uh, sort of double dipping. <laughs> <laughs> you must be good at applying to fellowships. I, I don't know what it was, um, but it's actually, uh, it was edited by a woman who was previously on this podcast, Sarah Menkedick, and basically it gave you a small amount of money to produce two long form stories. And I hadn't really experimented with that before, but it felt incredibly natural the moment I started like trying to do it. So I ended up writing two stories about one about basically headscarf fashion and the process of choosing a headscarf before going on a date. In Indonesia. In Indonesia, in a, in a place where Sharia, under Sharia law where women technically always had to be wearing a headscarf. What happens when you go ask a Indonesian woman living under Sharia law about her headscarf fashion and dating as a Fulbright scholar who's been in the country for 18 months or less. So that one was much more done. That one was more inspired by friends who I oh, knew were already undergoing that experience. Mm. So it, it was something that I had seen and sort of slowly become more aware of. But um, that one just sort of came out. The one that was harder was the second one. And Sarah was very helpful and sort of giving me some pointers and guiding me as I did this, but was writing a story about a young man who had survived a gigantic tsunami that had basically wiped out Banda Aceh, the Boxing Day tsunami, which killed about a quarter million people in the province. And that one was different because I sort of had to learn how to report. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had to like learn what I was doing. And he he was again someone who had approached me while I was uh, doing some stuff involved with the university there and he had sort of made overtures of friendship and I had learned about his story and then um, I mean the the devastation that the tsunami had left on the landscape was just so clear <laughs> I mean you could just literally whole villages were still there were no walls still <laughs> there was just the concrete foundations of houses and um, when that tsunami had hit the west coast at some places, it was about 100 feet high. And and so learning to tell his story and then interweave it with sort of the greater story of the tsunami, and then also to look at a larger extent at the traumatic stress, like PTSD, that the entire region was still grappling with afterwards was something that I had to, which didn't feel as natural as the first one. And Sarah was really 
wonderful in editing and sort of teaching me how to put that together. But that was, those were sort of my first experiences writing long form. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for just a second to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace makes it so easy to launch your project. There's no reason to procrastinate any further, whether it's starting a new business, showcasing your work, publishing content, or selling products. They've got the right template for you. What does that mean? That means whatever it is that you're thinking of, they've probably done a lot of the work for you by getting a world-class designer to make an incredible template. All you do need to do is uh, make a few clicks, customize a little bit, and you have a one-of-a-kind site perfect for you. And if you run into any stumbling blocks, they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. Everything works out of the box, including analytics, optimization for mobile. Uh, Squarespace has empowered millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, and yes, writers. It's a great place to make a portfolio site for your writing. Uh, Whatever it is, uh, Squarespace is there to help turn your great idea into something real. So go to squarespace.com slash longform. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain but to sign up you can just get a free trial without anything just squarespace.com slash longform start a free trial offer code longform if you launch the site help support the show thanks squarespace just in a general sense going from like that tsunami story on you're reporting in a place that is not where you grew up. What have you learned about reporting on um, places that are new to you? So I do a huge amount of previous research before I show up. But in general, I actually haven't written too much about places that are totally new to me. Hmm. So I had different parts of my life, both during university and then afterwards, before I became a Fulbright Fellow, I actually worked in the refugee camps along the Thai-Burma border, or the Thai-Myanmar border. So I was familiar with a lot of the political dynamics there. You know, re- reporting throughout Indonesia, now I've spent years at this point in, in that region and it's in the Malay Peninsula, and I speak the languages. So really, these this writing then represents thousands of hours of development work to put yourself in the position to do these stories, to learn the language, to learn the uh, local politics. How did you think about like focusing in on a single story? And and, um, did you have like multiple ideas you were working on about what to write about in Indonesia? Or did you fixate pretty quickly on the I'm going to pronounce, mispronounce them. Lamarillans? <laughs> no, no. It's similar to my own name. Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, the Lamalarians. Lamalarians. Yeah. Um, like, how did you um, translate all of your experience in Indonesia into this story? So I think at first it just sort of percolated as concerns or thoughts, you know, and I was really thinking about all of those cultures and groups that I had met up in the mountains. You know, Indonesia is a one of the world's most culturally diverse places and you could see these processes of sort of the outside world coming in and affecting traditional local cultures 
I could see many different examples of that. And then as that became a larger theme, I knew that the story that was the strongest was the Lamalarians. Um, yeah. And then I knew that when the time came for, for that I would have the capacity and the ability to write a book, that would be the book that I wanted to do. So there was actually a very long wait before that happened. Yeah. Because I, so I finished my second Fulbright fellowship and then I moved here. I moved to New York. I actually avoided doing the journalism track. I interviewed at the New York Times, I interviewed at GQ, and I interviewed at Penguin. And the job that I ended up taking was at Penguin Books as an editorial assistant. Um, I think partially because of Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers, I had sort of gone on a jag and just read so many different... I, I had just read so deeply in that genre yeah. that books were really what what I was really invested in. And I really liked the greater latitude they gave to the writing. And I had, I still, I didn't think of myself as a journalist at that point. That wasn't necessarily something that I was aiming at. But during my time at Penguin, it fairly quickly became clear to me that, well, I liked being in the book editing world. I didn't want to actually become a book editor. And two, that I, I thought that I could probably write a book. And like, I thought like I could sort of pass the bar. You know, as an editorial assistant, you just see submission after submission after submission come yeah. in. And if you want to like, de-glamorize the book industry, it's a pretty good way to do it. Yeah. And it gives you like, it gives you a bar, right? You're like, well, yeah. I, you know, if I just took my name off of it and, you know, I just wrote a bunch of, you know, stuff, I could probably write something good enough to put in this pile that would interest editors. And so, you know, I spent two years doing that and then I knew I was ready and I, I, uh, were you publishing stories during that time? I, a very little bit. I did a yeah. little bit of work for the New York Times, but um, I had a full time job. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. I was. So I was not writing long form. I wasn't trying to do all these other things. And so I actually have sort of come into all of this very backwards. So you know, the first thing I did was I quit my job. I went back to La Malera. I did the basic reporting. I spent several months. I made sure that there actually was a book. Was that before pitching the book? Before pitching the book. Okay. I had talked to various people yeah. here to make sure that. How did you, had... without having like already sold the book, how did you structure that period of time to figure out whether you could write the book? What was your goal when you went to, to the I gave beach? myself four months. Okay. Um, and, you know, I saved up money. Yeah. That's what the two years And that was living for. inside the community. Living inside the community. Yeah. And it's, if you're going to go somewhere and just write a book without having a lot of financial resources, it's a good place because they don't use money. Yeah, right. Just need, just need <laughs> so to like bring some just some, some uh, whale oil. With yeah, it. bring bring some barter items. You know, there's a, it, yeah. it helps to have a little bit of cash, but it's not. Um, was that one of multiple reporting trips you took there? So it was, but yeah. I did those, and then I knew, you know, I knew with what I had and with sort yeah. of what I was capable of that. I could produce a book. <laughs> yeah. And did you write like an article form version of it or? No. So I, it, yeah, it's all been totally backwards. So I sold the book. I yeah. sold the book very shortly thereafter. An editor had been, an editor at the New Republic had been uh, known that I was in Southeast Asia. They had asked me to look into these things called click farms, which are entities that fake social media on an industrial scale. Yep. And so they basically what this one was was several you know a dozen to 20 people in a room depending on the day 
basically just using automated computer programs to add Facebook likes by the thousands or Instagram likes or tweets or make something trend on Twitter. And when the editor had asked me to do this, he'd been like, well, you know, he could see that I could write. You know, he had seen the other long form pieces. He'd seen the Times pieces. I I could produce the words. The question was whether or not I could get into these places. So he was just like, well, you know, other magazines are also working on this. But if you could get yourself in, I'd be really interested. And so I did. I was, I believe, the first person to manage to sort of finagle my way into one. And then that piece turned into a cover story. And I don't know, maybe 6,000, 5,000 words. And it was quite strong. And from there, I had a bunch of editors write me. And from there... I started writing for Wired, Men's Journal, and at this point, it's all happened sort of backwards because I started with a book, and now I'm doing daily reportage for the New Yorker. <laughs> so, like it, it's I, you know I started with the longest form, and now I do think of myself as a journalist, and I do want to do that. And now you know, when I do stuff for like the New Yorker or something, you know I'm on a 24-hour cycle. I'm trying to break news. I do break news, and it's been fun to sort of <laughs> move in from a an opposite angle. And you've been doing that while you've been working on the book, just like splitting yeah. your time, whatever works. What what has been the piece that um, you've been the most excited about uh, doing? I mean, for me, the uh, two pieces I'm the most excited to talk about are those North Korean pieces, <laughs> but uh, that's probably unsurprising. Uh, those those are good ones. I I had a lot of fun doing those. What okay? So you wrote about the assassination of Kim Jong Nam, uh, the old, eldest son of Kim Jong Il. Yeah, correct. Um, who was assassinated uh, in a Malaysian airport. And you also wrote about uh, Otto Warmbier, who was uh, the American hostage who basically died in North Korean custody. Like those stories. Both of those, and particularly, I would say the Kim Jong Nam story, are just like the kind of stories that, like, when they happen, I just like hear a clock starting to tick of like the American magazine industry, like people are jumping on flights, people are firing up Skype and going for it. Um, that isn't like something that's not like your beat. You're not like a guy who's like previously tried to like catch news cycles in that way. How did how did you end up with that story? You know, so I came in really sideways. So the first one was the Kim Jong Nam story, and I came into it very sideways. So the one of the women who was involved in the assassination was an Indonesian woman, and as I sort of you know followed in a very tangential way the progress of the case, at first it seemed just absolutely incredible that this woman was claiming that she was tricked into murdering the brother of Kim Jong Un. Yeah. Um, her claim was that. She had basically been gaslit by a conspiracy of North Korean spies to think that she was participating in a prank show, like a, the equivalent of America's you know, Funniest Home Videos, in which she would smear baby oil or sriracha sauce onto the faces of various unsuspecting victims, and there would be a hidden camera, and everyone would laugh, and she was going to be a star. Does this prank make sense, like, locally in Asia? It actually sort of does. When <laughs> okay. you said Sri Racha, I kind of got it a little more. The baby oil, I don't understand. Like, does baby oil make the eyes sting? I, You know, I don't know the baby. I don't know why exactly baby oil is funny. Yeah. But it, it does, you know, so I think the sense that to me it did make sense. Like, this isn't, like, that far. Yeah. It wasn't impossible made me even more interested. And then as I started digging and reaching out to various people in Indonesia who had known her and so on and so forth, 
it became increasingly credible to me that she actually didn't know what was happening at all. And so she did not finish elementary school. She had grown up in a poor rural village, um, worked in a sweatshop, eventually became a migrant sex worker. And so as sort of the outlines for a biography began to be nailed down, it became increasingly possible to me that she didn't actually know what she was getting herself into, that this sort of crazy defense might have been true. And so I really, I just went all out <laughs> in reporting it. And it was a little bit terrifying because I had I had been told that the New Yorker also had someone on it. So that was really, I had done a bunch of magazine features before that, but never one that was going to be <laughs> so fraught, which was such a big international story, which was such a um, complex reporting job where there really was the attempt to try and get a story that hundreds of other reporters hadn't gotten. And, you know, I think one of the keys, there was a, a lot of key moments where I think I was able to get a little bit deeper and just, you know, I spoke the language, you know, I knew the, the area that her that she was from, but then when I went to Kuala Lumpur, I, and that was new to me. But I managed to figure out the real name of a man that I only identify by a single letter in the article who was involved and who witnessed a lot of these events and interactions between the city Aisa and the, the North Koreans. Handler. Yeah, and many people had tried to find him. And they hadn't known his real name, which I managed to figure out. And then once I managed to figure out his real name, I managed to figure out where he worked, and he was a taxi driver. Managed to figure out what his taxi license plate was, and then I staked out a whorehouse where I knew I had I had good belief that he would bring clients there. And on one of my last nights in Kuala Lumpur, I saw the taxi license drive up, someone get out, I got in the other side asked him to go to a random place sort of like far away once we started driving i just started talking to him and from there a bunch more stuff happened but it really let me get into the inside of those events i think in a way that other people perhaps had not been able to get okay i have a couple questions there one and this is also true in the book um, which is that's a pretty incredible story, and that's not a story that is inside your story. So it seems like, for the most part, you choose to omit yourself uh, as a character in these stories. And my second question is, if you're comfortable saying, uh, how did you find out that taxi driver's real name? I can't. I can't. I can't say how I got the taxi okay. driver's real name. And what did the taxi driver? How did he react when he realized that you had? staked out his taxi and were not um, a random person who was um, uh, needing a taxi. He was a little freaked out at first. Yeah. But we talked for a long time and then he became comfortable. <laughs> like, the... And then like, you know, I just tried to approach him as a person. Like I tried to, to explain why this information could be helpful in saving a person's life or, you know, showing that she did not mean to kill this man. Yeah. And that that could possibly help her avoid hanging. Yeah. Which is what her punishment could have been. And, you know, I, he, to his credit, decided that that was worth 
taking the chance to help make the case that she did not know what she was getting into. And he was he was a a real hero for doing that. And especially because he, you know, he, he personally feared retaliation by the North Koreans and, and so on and so forth. So, so what did you learn? What was it that you learned from him that sort of opened up the story? Well, there was a lot of she could have just been saying those things. But I was able to look at like text messages, other forms of communication. He wasn't the only one that I was able to speak to who had witnessed sort of communications. And and at this point, as I've continued to follow the story, and at this point have now uh, had pretty exhaustive access to the communications that went on between the people in those stories, I can say with certainty that there's no evidence at all that she knew. You know, the the North Koreans pretended that they were Chinese TV producers, and they kept that up the whole time. Um, I asked you previously about, like, competing reporters, but this is also a story that, um, like, international investigators were interested in. Like, were you ever thinking about someone is maybe watching me or my research is seeking at least the same people as a potential um, North Korean, Malaysian, or American probe? Yeah. I was a very aware of the investigations and I knew who was conducting them. I was less afraid of like the North Koreans. I don't, um, as I sort of posit at the end of the story, I think that they probably wanted this assassination to be well known. I, um, the LOL some, t-shirt is a one, one indicator in that direction. Is uh, I think they were trying to send a message and yeah. I think they got that message across. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, feel particularly threatened by them. You know, in terms of international investigators, you know, you just do your best work and notice when you've come across the same people. Sometimes it can be useful. You know, you can sort of see who they've yep. gone to. Um, sometimes it's interesting to see who they've missed. And then, yeah, yeah. When you're, the parts of the story that take place in North Korea are in some ways unknowable or there's not going to be reporting from within North Korea on them, but particularly in the case of the um, uh, warm beer story, how did you start like recreating his experiences in detention in North Korea? Do you talk to experts? How do you sort of ask these questions that can't be asked directly of, of the government itself? So there's sort of two levels I can answer that question on. One of, <laughs> one of which I can speak about openly, and the second one I have to Fair avoid. Game. The first one is that a lot of people have been held in detention before. It's in a number in the mid-teens. And I went and talked to them, and all of them have very similar stories. They were held at one of sort of three places, um, and they, you know, had basically the same routines. They went through the same experiences. And then, you know, you have bits of information from sort of that secondary set of sources, which can say, you know, he was here at this time, here, there, and so on and so forth. Um, what... Um... What surprised you? Like, did you go in having a pretty clear idea of what happened and need to confirm it? Or were there a lot of, like, black holes in the sort of narrative of his his life that you had to fill in? So I went in, I had no more knowledge than the general public at the beginning. But there is a key moment when I was sort of doing, you know, the, the story review at the beginning when I was just going back and reading every single piece of everything that had been written about it, which is I saw that, 
the New York Times and the Washington Post had contradictory, had anonymous sources saying contradictory things about what had put him into his brain damaged state, um, which is that the New York Times had an anonymous official saying that he had been beaten and the Washington Post a few days later had one saying that he had not been beaten. I, I don't remember the exact words between the quotes, but yep. giving the indication that yep. that this was not what they felt had happened. And so I think a lot of the times when I have had some success in sort of getting a little bit more than you know, advancing a story have come from moments like that where you notice a wrinkle, <laughs> where yep. you notice a discrepancy. And part of what was so fascinating to me at the beginning was that everyone had gone with basically the New York Times' version. And it was like it, that had become not only just the conservative news media who were sort of like pushing it for ideological reasons, but that had become the accepted story in sort of the American consciousness. And so I knew that that... I didn't know where that was going to go. I actually assumed at the beginning that I wasn't probably going to, you know, be able to go deeper than that. But I banged my head on that wall long enough and got deeper. What got you deeper um, that you're allowed to talk about? Nothing. Okay. Um, Once the information that we can't talk about how you got comes out of the bag, like once you sort of say definitively, this is what happened, this contradicts these previous accounts. Like, I'm curious what the life of a story like that that starts off in a state of conflict is. Do people dispute what your reporting is or? No, that's the incredible thing. It's that everyone said they were going to dispute beforehand and that yeah. they were going to, various strong words were said. And I basically never heard anything from the White House. I never heard anything. You know, I, there were, the White House took a strong issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did that become a fact-checking issue with GQ at all? No, no. I had it. Yeah, okay. So there's strong wording, but then that's the last you've ever heard of it. Yeah. So you go, you're four months, you leave, you pitch the book, you sell the book. At that point, what did you think you needed to do to actually write the book in terms of actually being there um, in this community? I had wanted to spend about a year yeah. And I had really admired books like Behind the Beautiful Forevers or Random Family or The Spirit Catches You That and You Fall Down. You know, books that follow individuals over the course of a long period of time. Yeah. There's and, almost like a sense of one upmanship in those books. Where it's like <laughs> one year sounds like a lot, and then you read Random Family and you're like, what <laughs> like year? a year. <laughs> um, no, but I had just loved I can't even put into words how much I loved those books. And I yeah. by no means only those books. Just I loved that genre of books so much. Um, and there was no way I was going to be able to spend a decade with the Lamalarians. It's kind of unclear they're even going to be there in a decade in the same form. I mean, if you stayed there for a decade, you might outlast them in a way in that part of the life. I mean, Well, I think I came at a very unique moment, and I got very lucky, and that's not something that I could really control. But, you know, at a moment of inflection when they're really, you know, they have been very aware of the war outside world for a century. They have, you know, been interacting with it. But really until about 2010, 2011, when they stopped using the palm leaf sails as much and stopped rowing, and they started using significantly more motors. They had really managed to keep things 
not exactly the same, but very, very similar to how they were. There were very few changes <laughs> on a grand scale. It doesn't mean there weren't some. There were some. But if you sort of look at it in a really big picture, they were still getting and still are getting almost all of their calories from hunting. They're still building the ancient whaling ships the exact same way. They're still, they really still keep the faith and traditions of their ancestors. Um, it almost feels like in the early part of the book, like the biggest change, like is just that they're trading with people on the other side of the island and those people have different things to trade them over the course of time. And time is, things are sort of filtering them through them only through that like barter commerce system, which is a <laughs> slow way to change. It, I mean, it is amazing how they are very, and I think rightly so, they really believe in their way of life. They have a lot of pride in it, and it has provided what they need, and they have made a conscious decision to try and continue to live this way as much as possible. And so really the only things that have <laughs> managed to draw them out are, one, Christianity, some missionaries successfully visited them, and the result was sort of a synthesis of their original animist religion and Christianity. But even that sort of just got subsumed <laughs> and life, you know, continued in certain ways in a very similar manner. And then two was wanting things that they couldn't produce from the jungle or from the sea. You know, and again, I'm sort of making gross generalizations here. But... Well, I mean, some of these things are both details about this particular tribe and speak to larger narratives. And some of them were things that I hadn't really considered. I think you do a very good job of um, describing the way that as a collective society, everyone is able to support themselves through whaling. And then outboard motors come, and an individual can kill more in a day fishing for smaller prey with an outboard motor. But the overall take for the tribe as a whole is actually diminished by everyone going and fishing small game with outboard motors instead of collectively fishing without motors for whales. This idea of um, a, a place where actually you may be better off in the collective, but that won't necessarily keep the collective together seems like a pretty profound idea about the modern world. I mean, it's really just baked into the structure of these societies as well. You know, so this group is, is could be classified as a hunter-gatherer society. They get most of their calories from hunting or from gathering. You know, if you were just to show up and look at them and not see them at sea, you would see a developing, a village in a developing country. You know, they wear t-shirts and shorts and so on and so forth. But for hunter-gatherer groups, you're really, your only way to do things on a large scale is just get a lot of people together and overwhelm it through manpower, <laughs> whether yeah. that's like cutting down a tree and then building a house or capturing a 60 ton whale. Yeah. The only solution is coordination. And that's and also the generosity. The, that's <laughs> the root of primitive markets also is the idea of let's like all share some of the risk and the reward. If we let truly this down to chance some people here would starve and some people would have a little bit too much food but we actually collectively have enough food to feed everyone um that sort of idea that you actually can get more than the sum of the parts through collective action i mean i guess that's like the amish are the most uh, famous mm -hmm. in america for that uh, ethos yeah the amish are a great comparison in some ways because you know there's a community that has conscientiously looked at what's in the outside world and decides how much they want to let in and what they want to take 
and what they don't. And the Lamalarians, I think one of the really heroic things about them are undergoing a very similar process. They have what's called the Tobunama Fata, which is the council on the beach. And every year, all the men of whaling age get down, sit down together on a certain date and basically try and make the rules <laughs> for the coming year. So, And it's through these sort of legitimizations of bits of the outside world that the outside world comes in. So at the beginning in the 1970s, outboard motors were a no-no <laughs> yeah. when, when it, they first came. And then in 2001, they were finally permitted. And then, you know, little by little, they're allowed each year allowed to do just a little bit more. Like, while I was there, I got to see them discussing, well, are we going to allow cell phones out on the ocean? Yeah. How are we going to use cell phones? And it's a little bit of an academic argument because all the young guys are bringing out their cell phones anyway. It's just like social <laughs> media policy in like a movie theater. It's like, eh, the assholes are going to do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it was just really powerful to watch a community try and decide what is good about the outside world. What do we want to take from it? What do we think is good about our original way of life? And they have a very strong argument in certain ways. Hunter-gatherers do as a whole, or traditional societies do as a whole, that they may have a better way of life. It's a trope among anthropologists that hunter-gatherers were the original affluent society. It's not, that's a very debated idea, but there are strong arguments to be made that hunter-gatherers worked less than we do. They certainly, on certain indices of happiness, score much higher, partially because of the communal nature of their work that we previously mentioned. Loneliness and a lot of the mental stress that goes along with it really just aren't reported at very high levels in these kinds of communities. And I think that part of what's has really resonated with for so many people who've heard the Lamalarian story is that we are all in some ways trying to figure out what are, what the best way to be human is. And they're actively searching for their answer to that the same way that we are. When you tried to understand how they were regarding that question, like how did information flow to you? Are you a fly on the wall at these meetings? Are you sitting there badgering people and being like, how do you feel about what he said? Like, how was your uh, ear represented in town? Um, I'm both. You know, I'm mean, a very well-known quantity. Yeah, I assume um, you can't like be I'm like not, undercover I'm not hidden there, at all. But, yeah. yeah, but you know, I as much as I can, as you noted before, I don't write about myself in these yeah. situations. If I have to be included for having altered an event or someone, it, you know, I'm just there for the fact of it. I don't. I wanted to write about the Lamalarians. I did not want to write about myself, <laughs> and. You know, I, I really just tried to hear their stories as much as possible. You know, so in total, I spent give or take four months over the course of three, four months each year for three years there. So about a year, you know, and have had various follow up visits afterwards, you know, tried to follow the lives of these three families that I profile in the book. And I was very lucky in some senses in that they're a very oral culture. Um, you know, they have oral histories. They <laughs> love to talk and they're talking all the time. And so I was just so lucky that they were so generous to let me live in their homes, to just spend literally every moment of every day with them. I just, they, you're, you're going, they're going hunting, I'm going hunting. If they're going to go chop wood, I'm going to chop wood. You know, it was everything. And then they were just so, there's not a lot of secrets in a town of 1500 people that's all you know where houses are packed together so you know people are just constantly discussing their feelings or why someone did this or that and 
I was just very lucky that they were generous enough to. What were the breaks like when you would leave for those eight months <laughs> and then show back up for another four month stint? Like, how much change could you actually perceive in your own entrances and departures? You could see a surprising amount. And I would try, actually, I would try not to go for four months straight. I would go for like two months and then come back for another, and then, then like let yeah. a lapse of time and then come back for another two months. So there wouldn't be to try and minimize how much. Where were you living during the non-Indonesian um, time then? Uh, in America. In America. And or I'd be traveling for my other reporting. Using Inside the Beautiful Forevers as a model, which I think it's a pretty good one. Oh, yeah. I very much what, pay like, homage to that. When you conceived of this book, what mixture of the individual stories of the people you're profiling directly, the larger story of their tribe, then the larger story of this island and that part of the world. And then I would say maybe even one step zoomed out the experience of the last remaining uh, hunter-gatherer peoples in the world sort of taken as a whole. Like, How did you think about balancing all of these micro and and macro narratives um, into a book? I think for me, the answer has always been you just find the people and you just listen to their stories. And I think that we're all microcosms, right? We're all fractals of the bigger world. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's my own life or your life or, you know, friends here or the Lamalarians or other people I've encountered reporting. I think that one of the things I'm constantly aware of is how these sort of greater world historical forces are working on us and shaping our lives. And so I think that this probably couldn't do it for anyone, but for more people than most people would assume if you really just followed their life and looked at it both in the particulars but also in the broader circumstances you could probably draw larger themes from them and their experiences so i never had any worries about whether or not i could sort of expand the lamalaren story for me it was always just about getting those specific stories right. And I knew that the rest of it would come. Was it hard to make it end? I mean, some of the oh, yes. some of the examples yeah. that you cited got an extra uh, eight or so years <laughs> yeah. on the end of it. And I, and I imagine it felt like, it always felt like it was about to change or it always felt like, wow, this is a, a seminal moment. You know, this is the day that more outboard motors launched than Tainas? Uh, Tainas. Yeah. Um, how was it actually having to stop at some point? Oh, I miss it. I miss them. They're are you, wonderful. And are I, you still in like Facebook touch with people? Still there? in pretty good contact. Seems like there's some heavy Facebook going on. Oh there. man, they. Uh, it's actually been wonderful that at the beginning there was only it was extraordinarily hard to keep in touch in 2014, and it's still not very easy, but it has gotten better, and so I feel like I'm able to still be present in a way that I, you know, and still be in touch with the people I care about there that in a way that I would not have been available or not been able to do that in 2014, just as the cell network gets better. And just as people learn how to use technology yeah. in a, in a better way. So, um, having had that vision as an editorial assistant, um, Hey, I could write a book. Uh, <laughs> it sounds so silly, right? How, well, but how does it feel looking back and additionally, um, now that you've um, backed your way into this career, how's it going and, and where do you go from here? I want to do harder things. I want to take on bigger challenges. It's been, I, I mean, it feels, I feel so lucky. I, I just feel so 
yeah, just incredibly lucky that I've been able to do this work, make a living, do stories that have impact, do stories that I really believe in. What what are the bigger challenges that that are looming in your mind? You know, I think if you look over sort of the course of my career, increasingly I've been aimed towards doing investigative stuff, you know, whether it's like the Kim Jong-nam piece or the Otto Warmbier piece or, you know, the stuff that I've been doing in the last few months for The New Yorker. You know, it's not, you know, again, it's it's website, it's breaking news, but at the same time it's trying to get stuff that other people are not. And because I came from a background of, you know, just sort of loving the art of writing and just loving these books so much. Yeah. I was surprised how poetic your book was, by the way, and I enjoyed it. Well, thank you. And I appreciate it. There's a lot of um, very beautiful descriptions about what being on the water is like and what these hunting large marine animals <laughs> really like looks like and feels like. So anyway, I cut you off. Sorry. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No. So, you know, I think I came into it knowing that I could write well, and I thought of myself as a writer at the beginning, you know, four years ago when I left that job. I'm a writer. And I've really appreciated the chance and the help of my editors and the help of other journalists to really try and do some hard investigative work and really you know one of the things that struck me about those books when I first read them and about this form that we're using now is that when we're telling true stories there's a power to the fact that they are true you know you could write a novel I could write a novel and it could be just as poetic and just as beautiful and there are many other ways it could be true besides factually and there are many other ways that it could affect the world but there is something really powerful when you when you get facts that other people have not seen yep. and which change the narrative and hopefully push the world towards a slightly better place that it's a lot of added value to being true so i you know i hope to really combine the writerly elements of <laughs> this form that i love but also to really push myself to take advantage of the fact that they're true stories and see what I can do with that. Thank you so much for this interview. Thanks, uh, the book is uh, The Last Whalers. If you're hearing this, it is out now. Thanks. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Janelle Pfeiffer, who edited this episode. Thanks to our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. And hey, if you did not already, go to the show notes. There's an Eventbrite link for our very special, not yet announced guest live show, Evan Ratliff book party. Uh, it's at the Bell House. Evan, what day is that? February? February 13th. February 13th. Uh, it's free, so go RSVP. Uh, thanks also to MailChimp and Pit Writers for helping make this show possible. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.